Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Grant Kaplan. Um, Dr. Kaplan is a professor of theology at SLU, so we are uh, colleagues at SLU, and so I've gotten to know Dr. Kaplan through several projects over the past several years, but we're going to talk about his book Faith and Reason in the Catholic Tradition uh, with Catholic University Press. Um, and so in this theological essay, uh, Dr. Kaplan sort of canvases various uh, attempts at Christian to reconcile uh, their faith um, with a kind of their own understanding of the world, their reasoning. Um, and so we talk a little bit about what grace and uh, faith have to do with intellect and reasoning. Um, we talk about Protestant and Catholic versions of this. We talk about the insights of Origen and Anselm. Um, it's, a, it's a great conversation. Learn a little bit about uh, Dr. Kaplan's own background um, and how he came to sort of experience his faith in a new way at a Presbyterian camp. Um, so uh, thanks to Dr. Kaplan for coming on. I hope you enjoy that episode. Um, and so please rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, get in touch with us on Facebook on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, we have a website um, and uh, yeah, um, just lots of different ways to get in touch with us um, and let us know uh, what, what you enjoyed or if there's other things you'd like us to address. Um, so thanks for listening, um, and here's my conversation with Grant Kaplan. All right. Well, uh, so today on a history of Christian theology, uh, we have my uh, colleague um, and friend, uh, Dr. Grant Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kant Kaplan is a professor of theology at St. Louis University, and um, yeah, we've been able. I was a grad student at St. Louis University. Uh, I don't think I ever took a class with you because I did early Christianity, but we. Uh, I have was fortunate enough to kind of work with you a little bit on another project. Um, so we've gotten to know each other a little bit um, over the last couple of years. Um, and Grant just wrote um, a new book, Faith and Reason. Uh, the uh, let's, see, let's see, Faith and Reason through Christian History, a theological essay um, with Catholic University Press. Um, so that's going to kind of be the focus of our conversation. So welcome, Grant. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you here, Chad. Um, it's great to have you as a colleague, and uh, I'm thrilled to be on your podcast. Yeah, um, yeah. You'll be one of uh, many. Uh, you know, th I've I've leveraged my uh, place at SLU for a lot of interviews, so I'm glad that this finally came to fruition. Uh, I, I think I actually got your a copy of the book uh, in the fall, and then got bogged down with a lot of stuff. And so I'm glad this can finally happen. Um, so the first thing I kind of wanted to start where your book starts, uh, which is, uh, interestingly, you talk about being at a Presbyterian camp um, and sort of what that meant for your own faith development. Um, and so that that's kind of an, an interesting place to begin here because you're Roman Catholic. I go to a Presbyterian church now. Um, so uh, would you mind saying a little bit about uh, what, that that story and how that begins uh the the maybe some of the ideas for this book way back i guess was this in high school yes i um you know grew up catholic but there wasn't actually a youth group at my church and i didn't even know until later that catholics were allowed to do youth groups and so <laughs> in the and that, you know, I was born in 1972. So in the late 70s and early 80s, it wasn't really a, a peak in the history of the Catholic Church and catechetical formation. And so it was just like, oh, well, 
Protestants that I knew seemed to kind of care about doing these things for kids and for Catholics. It was just, you know, uh, go along and, and sit through things and uh, eventually get confirmed, but not have much formation. And so I, just by happenstance, you know, a, a neighbor who lived down the street, his dad was a Presbyterian minister, who went to this camp a few many times, and it was mostly just fun stuff and singing songs and, you know, running around. But then later, um, it was, there was uh, some of this intellectual encounter and I, you know, I hadn't thought about my faith a lot as, as a kid. Um, I believed in God. I it was more of a taking it for granted. And I just remember, you know, the, it was the first time having an intellectual conversation about faith, you know, where I got a sense that it met a, a sort of existential need. And so it's the first time I remember that it, it could have happened in a bunch of different ways, but it just happened at this place. And, uh, and so that's where the book starts. Excellent. Yeah. So do you sort of see, uh, like, I, I don't know how you envision sort of your vocation as theologian, uh, but do you sort of see some of the work that you do at SLU kind of, uh, I don't know, redressing some of those uh, maybe gaps uh, that were in kind of your own formation as a, as a Catholic? Like, do you look at theological education as something that you can provide to uh, give a sort of similar, um, uh, I don't know, instigation for, for faith um, in, in the way that you teach and stuff? Certainly, Yes. Um, I, uh, I, I think, um, John Tracy Ellis wrote an influential essay in the fifties and he was a Catholic priest. He was a church historian and it was on the, um, you know, the intellectual life of Catholics. And he said in the United States, Catholics have made impact in politics and commerce and culture and entertainment, but the place where they made the least impact is the intellectual life. Mm. And, uh, and so he talks about the different reasons why. And one of my great mentors was a Dominican scripture scholar named Benedict Viviano, who was born in 1940, and he entered the Dominicans in, I think, 1958. And he read this essay, and he said, you know, he wanted to make a small contribution on this front. And I would understand my vocation as a theologian is something similar, it basically helping students, not just Catholics, but I have taught at Catholic universities for 20 years, so more Catholics than anything else, um, experience um, or a, a kind of intellectual um, conversation about their faith life in a way that makes it more intelligible and uh, possibly true to them. And so this book, Faith and Reason, does uh, I can't I can't remember. I think you probably say it, but uh, it, it, does it emerge from your your teaching as well? I, th I can't remember if you actually mentioned that, but have you used this in in some of your classes at SLU? I did teach a couple courses on the undergraduate level on the relationship between faith and reason. So I've I've always been interested in the relationship between faith and reason from the beginning of my studies. But I was asked to write this book, and uh, and so I, 
you know, as I began to think about how to write it, I wanted to teach some of the major authors in the Christian tradition to see if I could identify certain themes. So, and then that way it began in the classroom. Yeah. Well, and you, you do call it. So I, one of the things that's sort of interesting um, here is uh, the the book is called an essay. Um, I guess we sh- we should say a little bit, maybe you know, put the emphasis a little bit different. Um, you know, coming more from from the French word for to try, right? Um, so the book points to you say uh, it's as an essay. The book points to and even claims uh, normativity for a certain recurring Christian grammar about faith and reason. It is a theological essay, meaning it, that it allows the the grammatical structure of Christian speech about God to guide it through the past twenty centuries. Um, and, and so you sort of talk about this idea of the kind of possibility, um, uh, or well, it's not comprehensive, uh, but it is, you know, sort of trying to, uh, you know, work through many different, um, elements, uh, or excuse me, many different epochs of, uh, sort of Christian, um, grappling with faith and reason. Uh, so could you, you know, maybe say a little something about like, why, you know, why have we moved away from this kind of theological writing? Um, and, and what was it like writing? more in this mode than maybe, I don't know, a, a more systematic or a more historic, like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, sy- maybe systematic way is the right comparison there or comprehensive. Yeah. Well, the person who approached me about writing the book or- originally said that um, what was lacking in theology were overviews of main topics in theology that would do the whole history but that would um, be readable. And so, you know, a different theological topic, Trinity, you know, a guide to the Trinity. Well, what would be a responsible, learned guide to the Trinity that wouldn't be 900 pages long or 800 pages long or something like that? And so, I mean, I took the word essay. I was inspired, you know, in part by Newman um, and in part by this way of writing that is more French. I work on a French figure named René Girard and his style of writing has a lot to do with the popularity of his work. And so I wanted specifically to write a more accessible book that would provide an overview, but the danger for a scholar is always to be like, oh, well, I have to responsibly cover this and responsibly cover that. And there's just a lot of things I leave out in this book because I didn't want it to be 600 pages long. Um. Sticking with this kind of, um, you know, we've talking about like the, the, the background of this book a little bit. Um, so in, in sort of, uh, historical terms, like why, what is the difference it makes that you're approaching this from more of a Catholic point of view than say a Protestant point of view? Um, is there, is there something about the way that Catholic theologians approach a question like faith and reason, uh, that could be at odds with a more, I don't know, Presbyterian or Protestant theologian, like, uh, like you were talking about in your, in your upbringing? Yes. I think the Catholic tradition has a longer history of seeing um, philosophy and theology as compatible with one another. And so there's always these these different kind of moments or pulls. You could almost imagine it like an accordion or something that goes closer and stretches apart. And you see it's just 
the movement in history. It's not at the beginning, everyone just thought faith was all that mattered. And then later on, you know, there was this attempt to make it rational and that was either improving it or making it worse. You know, it's just not the case. I mean, already you have Jesus identified with the logos, the word reason Mm. in um, the gospel of John. Right. But then you have Paul saying these things like, I know nothing but Christ crucified and uh, Christ is a scandal to the Greeks and, uh, and, uh, you know, wiser than any, any wisdom. And so it's, it's this tension you already see in, in the biblical text and that carries on throughout the whole history. And that's one of the themes of the book um, is that uh, push and pull. I would say that because of Luther's experience with a kind of decadent late medieval scholasticism, he against which he strongly rebelled. Now, there were already rebellions against it or pushback against an overly dry, intellectualized scholasticism. In the 13th century, it was someone like Bonaventure. So it wasn't that Luther's attempts or complaints were unique, but given his role Mm. in the foundation of Protestant Christianity, that became much more part, a suspicion of reason became much more part of the Protestant DNA. But in the book I show already, Melanchthon is walking a lot of Luther's stronger comments back, and Luther himself walks some of those comments back. So I I wanted as much as possible to show a kind of tendency within Protestant theology, but also a diversity within Protestant theology about these questions. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reminded, uh, you know, part of my job is to teach at the Catholic seminary here. And, uh, you know, when I'm talking to other Protestants about what I do, uh, I they, they're always surprised at how long Catholic priests spend in quote unquote seminary. Well, of course, for us or for over at the at the Catholic seminary, the seminary is actually just the first degree and it's a philosophy degree. Um, and then the second degree is the master of divinity. And so you spend, you know, you spend many years in your training as a priest. But it's very clear that uh, even from that kind of um, like a uh, way of doing formation that philosophy is integral um, to the theological project of uh, you know the the training and formation of Catholic priests and then therefore um, you know ca- Catholics in general. Yeah, and that putting uh, doing philosophy first was something that became uh, part of seminary formation. I think in the nineteenth century, maybe it's a little bit earlier. Uh, it was actually not the case in the medieval period that you would study philosophy first. I mean, you'd do the the, the trivium and the quadrivium uh, as a kind of foundation, but um, uh, yeah, and so the um, uh, that but that's studying philosophy in the Jesuits that study with us, the Jesuit scholastics who are at St. Louis University, they're doing their philosophy after their novices. So they're novices where they do the spiritual exercises, some kind of volunteer experience, and then they do scholasticism where they have to get the or the scholastics, which they have to get the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in philosophy. 
the reality is that most of them get a master's in philosophy. And then they, they teach high school usually. And after that, they study theology. And so <laughs> theology is subsequent to philosophy. But the faith experience of the discernment and the 30-day silent retreat where you do the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, that's prior. So it's kind of interesting how it's not just the intellectual part and then the affective. The affective part comes first, but the intellectual formation is one where philosophy precedes theology and um, you know, a lot of a lot of other religious traditions would balk at that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I was just thinking of when you were kind of comparing Luther and kind of the, I think you used the word decadent, uh, late medieval scholasticism that he was responding to. It is interesting, of course, that the Protestants respond with their kind of, you know, Protestant scholasticism uh, not long after Luther. So, it, you know, I guess to some extent, uh, you know, there, even if you just look within kind of the last 500 years within Protestantism, you also have this accordion uh, style uh, back and forth uh, between sort of reason, rationality, and that kind of thing, uh, and and faith. So you know, to some extent, you know, you could tell a similar story. Although, of course, in a way, it's going to be shorter um, when we're calling something specifically Protestant. But that same tension. Certainly, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so in your uh, so I just. Going uh, deeper into uh, the book, in your survey of the early uh, theologians, I, I was uh, you know interested in how you kind of characterize the patristics. Obviously, that's something I have uh, great interest in. Um, but um, you, you're in your exposition of origin. You you have this quote: "Christianity is an historical religion, meaning meaning its deepest truths rest on historical." claims. Um, and it's sort of interesting, you know, right from the beginning as Christians begin to reflect um, on their their faith, uh, and, and as is in this case of origin, we're already sort of seeing the um, that tension of faith and reason, history um, and faith. Um, so could you say a little bit um, about uh, why there might be a problem with faith and reason um, and, and how it relates to the question of, of history? Yes. So the... Um, uh... You know, historical truths are, um, uh, they can't be demonstrated in the way that logical or mathematical or scientific truths can be demonstrated. So, you know, you take an ancient historical truth like Caesar crossed the Rubicon and whatever year he did uh, or the year we think he did. And now there's a certain amount of evidence that we might have, you know, reference to Caesar in multiple manuscripts, you know, um, the reference in authors that were, you know, not friendly to the Roman Empire, um, you know, corresponding archaeological evidence, and, and his name might be on a coin or something like this. But um, you can't reproduce the truth the way you can reproduce like the Pythagorean theorem or, you know, whatever objects fall at 30 feet 32 feet per second per second that can't be like reproduced in a lab so we could you know the normal way we refer to these kind of truths is contingent truths and so um christianity rests on certain contingent truths um crucified by, by pontius pilate rose again on the third day born of the virgin mary like 
the, the creed of Christians, the main creed of Christians, references belief in historical truths as well as metaphysical truths, you know, one in being with the Father, God from God, light from light. These are things that are uh, seen as, you know, metaphysical claims that don't rest on a historical record. And so, um, uh, yeah, and history is, is, you know, at different times seen as, you know, a very exalted, reliable science, and at other times is a very unreliable science. I mean, right now, uh, yeah, well, with, well, for a long time, historians have been in a kind of crisis of, you know, how subjective in light of postmodern thought is history, and then how do we need to think, how can you kind of separate the historical event from the teller of the historical event? Yeah, it's I, I remember uh, when I first got to SLU, we had to take a, a class with Ken Parker on historical method. And I found that to be maybe one of the most challenging classes I probably took uh, in in the doctoral program, but also one of the most helpful for trying to wrap my mind around some of these problems. And we didn't, you know, we didn't necessarily try to solve them uh, metaphysically or something, but it was just encountering this conversation, and it just made me think of the uh, you know Lessing's uh, ditch, which I had never heard that that problem. You know, how do we get sort of the uh, um, uh, metaphysical immortal truths um, given to us in sort of a contingent historical fashion um, and you know being introduced to this kind of problem put so so starkly you know it's interesting that o origin was already thinking about it um, and it sort of recurs as you say where you have kind of different um, eras of kind of historical uh, certainty Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, Dr. Parker, Ken Parker was a, a great friend and that was a, a legendary class, a very valuable class for introducing students into the discipline of historical theology. And so, um, I mean, you know, the, the, the when you have an, a religion based on events like basically Western monotheistic religions, uh, this, then you're going to get a, you know, a relationship to these events and a sort of style of thinking that's different from a religion based on like speculation, you know, or contemplation. And so that speculative idea, uh, idea, now you get a lot of what we would call speculation in Christianity, it's certainly true, but it's, it's always rooted in these events that took place and that the human being is in a way kind of responding to events rather than, um, or experiences, rather than just speculating uh, about what what the truth is. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Um, so just kind of, you know, moving forward a little bit in history, and maybe there's a kind of a hint at some uh, rapprochement between uh, these uh, sort of poles of, of that we've kind of been talking about, the push and pull. And Anselm, uh, in your discussion of Anselm, uh, you write, the, the understanding arrived at through the rational uh, cogitative activity takes place on the same graced continuum as faith. Understanding intellectus does not mean the rational pursuit that humans undertake on their own. Uh, Pre-modern authors en masse did not think about reason this way. So could you say a little bit some, uh, of something about the, the nature of sort of pre-modern understanding of rationality um, and how kind of maybe we had a, a more uh, 
you know, unified view of these things um, that that weren't always so antagonistic. Yeah, I mean, um, this is something that when you, you know, we're our instinct or our natural tendency as modern readers is to think of, you know, reason or intellect um, as like a an autonomous human activity that takes place on a purely natural plane. And then faith is like the top story or a higher level or something, and it comes down uh, to us or it requires grace or something. And I don't think that's the case with pre-modern authors and especially Anselm. I think there's enough hints and evidence that he thought of reason is already on a, uh, a scale, so to speak, of participation in the mind of God, of, uh, you know, needing some kind of grace, of not purely, you know, even when they say natural reason, they don't imagine nature as a kind of shut off, boxed in, autonomous system that runs on its own without God. Um, so once you understand this, then it's easier to um, kind of put together faith and reason. And when the modern authors, and I talked about Spinoza and Descartes, when they come along, they're, they're much more interested in bracketing anything supernatural or graced um, outs outside of this cogitative reasoning faculty. Uh, and so that, that um, in a way, then creates the uh, split or the schism or a kind of unbridgeable gulf between faith and reason in the modern period. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, uh, Owen Barfield in, uh, saving the appearances talks a little bit about, you know, sort of, uh, he has the, like the, it's almost like the scientific method assumes a view from nowhere. Well, a view from nowhere, I guess is Rawls's phrase, but like, or sort of assumes that you could be outside the system, um, and just sort of independently reason outside the system and look at it sort of like you look under a microscope and, and sort of the mentality that arises in a kind of scientific age is that you can abstract yourself enough um, from, from uh, investigation that it's sort of purely rational, purely reasonable, and it's not affected, right? It's not like it doesn't participate in the system because if it does, it would ruin the experiment, right? Like you could never uh, totally control all the yeah. variables, um, and it sort of seems like, you know, the, the pre-modern authors or, you know, Anselm and, I, you know, I, I think I'd put Augustine in this to a certain extent as well. They already understand that they're reasoning within uh, a system at work, a system moving, a system going in, in a direction. And you can't, you know, have the godlike distance um, at all. So reasoning uh, is like, as you say, is already rooted in, uh, in a kind of graced activity. Yes, definitely agree there. There's a very, uh, you know, good and accurate summary and uh, that, you know, pro I mean, plenty of philosophers of science have talked about this problem of, you know, the objective view of the scientist not really being the case. And um, yeah, I mean, that's well, well trod and documented. 
Well, one thing that I like to ask my guests to kind of, uh, you know, a kind of um, different question that can relate to your research for this book, but it can also just be like sort of getting to know a a scholar and an author. I like to ask, what is one thing that you once thought true and now think is false Um, or the other way around? You once thought was false and now think is true. Um, So just a kind of uh, open, open question. Um, You can whatever, whatever comes to mind. Um, about some kind of major change in your thinking, and then maybe a little bit like what what changed, what caused you to to make this change? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, um, you know, I was uh, as a as a Catholic, I was very influenced by Karl Barth mm. and the story he told about the nineteenth century, and specifically, well, he wrote a book called the the, the History of Protestant Thought in the Nineteenth Century as a kind of downhill all the way leading to, you know, Protestant ministers and theologians being complicit in the First World War and what he called cultural Protestantism. And it all sort of started with Friedrich Schleiermacher. And I, um, I've done a lot of work recently on F.C. Bauer, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who I talk about briefly in the book, but I you know, he's kind of seen as like the worst sort of Protestant liberal theologian. And, um, you know, from a Catholic perspective, it's like, well, you know, guys are all Protestant, so your differences don't matter that much to me, right? But, um, uh, I mean, that's a sort of a sly tongue-in-cheek way of putting it. But um, I, you know, I was quite convinced by Karl Barth and, and um, yeah, and increasingly, I think, um, some of the more interesting conversations that are going to happen ecumenically between Protestant and Catholic theologians were already happening and are already contained in the writings of Schleiermacher and also Bauer, you know? And so when I was in graduate school, Mm. a lot of Catholics were like, oh, we don't really, and a lot of Protestants, I mean, my, my roommate had come from Duke Divinity School and he was very much kind of Barty and Hauerwas type. And, and so that it was very much a, the mentality among Catholics was, well, Bart's good, but, you know, Schleiermacher and Bauer and these 19th century German liberal Protestants, they're, they're not really worth your time. And they were all wrong. And Karl Barth showed exactly how. And that, that I just simply don't believe anymore. And I think in some ways, Chris, Ferdinand Christian Bauer is probably the most interesting Protestant theologian of the past 200 years. Huh. Yeah, well, that will uh, that would go against uh, or well at least complicate the story. I, I just recorded an interview. It hasn't aired yet with um, Paul Hinlicky. And and uh, he's a Lutheran theologian, lived in Slovakia for many years um, and tells the story of Samuel Saul Osuski. Uh, And this guy uh, basically tells uh, he basically comes to a similar conclusion about German liberal theology um, and it's sort of. uh, uh, I don't know what what's the right word. Sort of the the way it laid the groundwork for and even sort of blessed uh, World War One and ultimately World War Two. And so Hinlicky tells a story, sort of like uh, uh, through Osuski, sort of like Bart. Um, and I think you mentioned Hauerwas in there as well. Uh, but but anyway, that'll be it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to get uh, uh, his response to that. But uh, yeah, so anyway, listeners can can look out for that conversation.
Sure, bring us both back on. No, I I mean, I think that there's plenty of things that the, that tradition gets wrong and I wouldn't follow them all the way, but I think in a lot of ways, it was a profound engagement animated by a very deep faith and uh, they, they say a lot of interesting things. And, and so, you know, um, it's just something that I hadn't expected to change my mind because I found Bart very convincing, but. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't necessarily mean to challenge you per se. I was just sort of, it was it just like, I had just recorded that interview. Um, so it was sort of fresh on my mind. <laughs> oh, great. Great. No, I mean, the important thing is people are talking about, you know, uh, the, these things, uh, that's, that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, at, at sort of towards the, the end, uh, of your book, uh, you talk about what it means to receive faith. Um, and so, uh, I thought I may ask you to sort of expand on, uh, why, why, what is, uh, why this is an important way to frame the relationship between faith and reason. The, the quote that I sort of had in mind was you say in our late capitalist culture, uh, faith perhaps comes to the believer in spite of her parents and religious leaders and in defiance of what respectable people believe the task in these circumstances is to show the reasonability of the ascent since it's gifted, non-obligatory quality is on full display. Yeah, so you got someone like Kierkegaard, you know, when he talks about Christendom and he talks about this problem of, you know, if you read the biblical account or the early Christianity, Christianity is still sort of turning away from the world. But in the Denmark of his time, when I think, you know, every Danish citizen was like automatically a Christian, it's just you you associate Christianity, the acceptance of Christianity with the world, you know, mm -hmm. um, with... Uh, uh, whatever is, you know, normy, um, and and that is still the case in certain parts of, you know, more rural parts. I would I would say of the United States, or you know, the, I guess the Midwest and the South. There's a kind of normative assumption of Christian um, exteriority, you could say, and. But that's it's changing. It's changed everywhere very quickly. I just got back from Ireland, and you know, there's a lot of discussion about just the bottom falling out of the Irish Church for a variety of reasons. But going from what had been a kind of people thought of Ireland as a pious Catholic place to just a intensely secular place, you know, closer to Spain and France than to you know the Ireland of Joe Biden's memory or something. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and that, uh, so the, the, the possibility of recovering faith as this graced experience, um, I think, you know, uh, it says in the Bible, you, you have nothing that you haven't received mm -hmm. and there's a receptive quality of faith. And so, you know, you can imagine it or compare it as something like falling in love. So when the first time you remember falling in love with someone or something, you remember it almost as something happening to you. Mm -hmm. And so outside of the normal romantic context, it may be that, you know, the first time you, you picked up Dostoevsky or whatever, and you just around page 42 or 142, you suddenly felt like, oh my gosh, this person is writing 
novels in a way that speaks to me. You know, like the apostles on the road to Emmaus, I feel my heart is burning inside, you know. <laughs> and uh, so this can be an intellectual thing. It can be, uh, you know, a romantic, erotic. It can be a friendship. Um, but that falling in love, when we experience it, we experience it fundamentally as something that happens to us, right? And uh, And that is the nature of faith as something that happens to us. And since it happens to us, like I can go outside and garden and get the weeds off of my grass and the weeds are there now and I can pull them all out and solely by my own labor, I will have unweeded the grass and it's my accomplishment, right? And so a lot of intellectual things that happen to us, you know, Mm -hmm. we get the sense of having earned or, you know, different, uh, mm-hmm. different experiences. Um, you get the sense of having earned it, having uh, climbed up to it. Well, this is, uh, the momentum kind of goes the other way. Instead of us climbing, it's something coming into us. And so that experience um, uh, is, whether it's a, you know, totally secular experience or not, there's an analogy between it and the experience of receiving faith. And I think in this era in which for so, you know, a decreasing number of people, increasingly decreasing number of people, faith is not something that's just almost naturally acquired in the context of a thick mm-hmm. religious community, then the, the, the likelihood for people recognizing this graced quality is much higher because it is like an aha wow, I didn't expect this experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that, uh, my first thought is, uh, one, it reminds me of kind of how I teach, uh, you know, when Augustine talks about in book one of the confessions, you know, the idea of a rebirth, right? It's not something you choose, it's something you receive, right? So it's almost like the the fundamental Augustinian posture, if you like, is reception. Um, and and that seems to be for him uh, the the beginning. And, and, you know, why does it take until book eight? Or why does it take until his 30s before this tole le? a moment well it's not something that you can make happen in the strictest sense um it has to be uh received and and you can never you can never know when that moment is going to happen um you can't and you can't control it and you can't make it happen but when it does it's sort of undeniable um as it was for him Uh, yeah and that for him there's this key tension between you know pride and humility and so Mm -hmm. He's not, he's not humble enough to receive this and uh, is too proud. And that, you know, a lot of times that affective disposition has more to do with us understanding the intelligibility of faith than reason. And it almost it also sort of connects back to to kind of go full circle. We were talking a little bit about uh, your experience at this Presbyterian camp. Um, you know, there like that's not something that you sort of did on your own, uh, but it did occasion a kind of question about the the uh, sort of an existential question of your own faith. Um, and so there, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, that was part of, it seems like if I, if I, maybe I'm projecting, but it seems like there's some sort of a, an uncontrollable quality to that. It wasn't just the pure kind of intellect working on its own, uh, but responding to the circumstances in which you were, when, when, which you were placed. 
Yeah, I mean, one way you could say it is, you know, I mean, you and I are both theologians, and I think we both have a theological vocation. Um, and one way of thinking about it is not, you know, it wasn't like, does God exist or not? But it was more like, well, God clearly exists because this other person is speaking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, And so, therefore... Since this is the case, how do you work out the rest of life? You know, <laughs> given that this is so, you know, it's almost like, you know, not to put too dark a thing on it, but it's almost like, um, you know, if you get like a, a death, deathly diagnosis or, you know, you woke up one day and you had wings and you could fly or something. It's like, well, now that I can fly, how am I going to organize the rest of my life? You know, I don't need a car anymore. Um, you know, I've got to figure out somewhere to put these wings or whatever. And so, you, you know, it's, it's a way of, um, you know, or if you, you know, realize you have five years to live, then, you know, everything is like, well, no, how do I, what do I want to do? If I'm only going to be alive for five more years, then what's really important to me? And it's just something that kind of reorganizes everything. And so for me, believing in God or having an experience of Christ in my heart made me want, you know, said, well, given that this is the case, now how am I going to, you know, figure out the rest of what I believe about the world and the person and, you know, whether there's meaning and goodness in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, you know, it's hard not to think about phenomenology here a little bit, but, uh, but either way, I, you know, I, I, uh, I was listening to another podcast where someone was trying to give, you know, kind of an apologetics, uh, and, you know, defense of historical claims and, I, you know, when I, we used to hear that a lot growing up, like, oh, you know, you need to, you know, you need to investigate your faith so you can defend it to those who might disagree with you and you can prove uh, the historical resurrection. And, and I used, you know, I was very interested in doing that sort of thing, but uh, it was uh, eventually I realized I was like, well, I'm not asking these questions uh, because I, someone else might ask them. Ultimately, I'm asking them myself, but really that's not the heart of the matter. Like there is, as you say, there's this, there's this experience, there's this thing that you can't control. So like, even if I could uh, give a perfect logical syllogism that would prove that Christ resurrected, that the tomb was empty, uh, it's a different thing though, um, to say, okay, well, if that's the case, then also Jesus is Lord. Um, you know, you, making that move, you know, you can't just do with apologetics. So I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little suspicious of apologetics generally. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that moment of existential um, encounter um, is just, you know, that, that's, the, that's the thing that you can't just make happen for someone. Yeah, and what the dilemma you're describing is what you know Maurice Blundell talks about when he talks about extrinsicism, and Blundell's been very important to me, and is very important to the book as kind of someone who gets the 20th century discussion going. Uh, so he's a very important figure, um, and I'm excited, like you, to welcome um, our new Danforth chair, Ann Carpenter, who works mm-hmm. on Blundell among other things. Well, uh, we're we're getting close uh, to, or we're ba- basically that's uh, about as much time as I have, and I don't want to take more of your time. 
Uh, but um, it, it's been great talking with you and getting to read uh, through this book a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, just thank you for your uh, in, encouragement uh, in my own career and uh, as well as, as putting out this uh, very helpful and thoughtful book on a very uh, you know, integral question to the life of faith. Uh, you're welcome, Chad. It's a joy and a pleasure to be on, and uh, I am very thankful for the work that you do both on this podcast and in the classroom.